some other time. wonder if we could turn to the book of Hebrews um, and to the chapter 3. And we're going to read from verse 1 of the chapter. Book of Hebrews chapter 3 and beginning our reading at the first verse. Hebrews chapter 3 and beginning our reading at verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when our fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take heed, therefore, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? So we... Uh, see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Amen. We know the Lord will uh, add his blessing to the reign of his precious word to our hearts. Again, we're taking the last uh, couple of verses that we read. To whom he, unto whom he swear, he that should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not, so we see that they could not enter in because of of unbelief. Amen. We uh, pray that God will bless as we gather around his word. Let's just unite in a word of prayer. Our loving God and our gracious Father in heaven, we do thank thee for the uh, opportunity of crying unto thee afresh this evening. We thank thee for God's precious word. We recognize the blight of unbelief, and we recognize that it is a serious thing uh, to stand in unbelief before the mighty God of heaven. So our God, we pray that thou wouldst 
enable us to look to thee. We pray that our faith might be strong and that we might indeed with all our hearts cling to our God this evening. Bless and be with us and meet with us for it's in Jesus' precious name that we'd ask these things. Amen. Amen. We see here in Hebrews chapter 3 the account of the sins of Israel as they were going through the wilderness. They were coming to the borders of the land of Canaan. You remember how God had brought them out of the bondage of Egypt and God had set them free from the slavery that they were under. God had brought them through the Red Sea, opened the sea for them and brought them through on dry land. We remember how they had passed through there and when they went out into the wilderness, God had provided for them in many ways. He had provided manna in order for them to eat and then he had brought water out of the rock. And when Amalek attacked, God had given them a mighty victory and when others too had come against them, God had undertaken for them in so many ways. And yet we find that they murmured against God. At one time they were looking for the leeks and garlics of Egypt. They seemed to have forgotten about the bondage to the taskmasters and the awful bondage and slavery that they were under. And they were looking for the old ways and the old paths. And they murmured against God. But that murmuring was nothing to the time when they came to the banks of the uh, the river Jordan and they were about to come into the land flowing with milk and honey. And you remember how they sent in some spies, 12 spies, one of every tribe of the children of Israel, and they were to enter into the land. But they sent out the spies, one of each of the tribes, and they came back with the report. They came back with a mighty bunch of grapes that was carried on a pole, and that is still the logo of the Israeli Tourism Authority right to this day. But here they were, and while they brought this uh, report of the richness and the fruitfulness of the land, they also said there were two of the spies, or ten of the spies, who said, Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great, Moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. And in many ways, what they were doing was, they were saying, well, it's a wonderful land. It's the land that God has promised. It's a land of blessing, a land flowing with milk and honey. But the problem is that there are giants in the land, and there are fortified cities in the land. And they were looking at the giants and at the fortified cities, and they were saying to themselves, well, we cannot overcome those mighty giants. We cannot overcome those people. And so this thought of unbelief began to enter into the very thought processes of these people. They had the promise of Abram. They had the promise of Jacob. They had the promise that had been made to David that they would be brought into the land and that God would establish his people. But here they were standing against God in unbelief belief. And what an awful thing it would be to stand in a day to come and we have that unbelief. We're told here that the children of Israel were promised rest. And that's one of the things that was said about the land of promise, that it was a land of rest. 
And God said, I will bring you into my rest. And in the book of Psalms, chapter 95, verses 7 and 8, we find that the rest of Canaan was not the complete fulfillment of the promise of God because God says that the complete fulfillment is in God's promise for a future day when he will bring his people into that eternal rest. Dear friend, the thing is that you will not be brought into God's rest or into God's blessing if there is unbelief. So this is an important subject tonight. And we want to think about the subject of uh, unbelief. Blaise Pascal, the great scientist and philosopher, said, one half of the ills of life come because men are unwilling to sit down quietly for 30 minutes to think through all the possible consequences of their acts. Well, we don't want you to go away not thinking about the consequences of your unbelief tonight. And so for a few minutes, we want to think about the subject of unbelief. And first of all, I want you to see the malady of unbelief. The text says here in the verse 19, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. They couldn't enter into God's rest. They couldn't enter into God's blessing because of unbelief. Verse 12 here says that the unbelief was evil. It came from an evil heart. If you look at verse 12, he says, uh, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. So this is something that comes from the heart. And it says that it brings departing from the living God. It brings a separation between us and the living God. And then if you look at verse 13, you'll see that not only does it speak about um, the separation of an evil heart and the uh, the evil of the heart, but it says that it is deceitful. He says, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So there's an evil heart, it's a deceitful heart, and the reason that it's deceitful is that it pulls the wool over our eyes, as it were. There are many men and women in this world, and they do not realize how sinful they are. They don't recognize the malady of unbelief. Many people can boast of their unbelief, and they can say, well, maybe sometimes they say to God's people, if only I could have the faith that you have. And they just uh, pass it over like that as if it was just a matter of uh, a choice that is made or some kind of preference that one has belief and another just doesn't. But I want you to see what the Bible says about this unbelief. We've seen that it's evil, it's deceitful, and it brings separation from God. But further than that, I want you to see that this unbelief, it comes from an inward thing. It says there in verse uh, number 12 there, he speaks about an evil heart of unbelief. And it comes then from the heart. It comes from the innermost part of our being. 
The heart in the Bible speaks of the seat of our understanding or of our affections, of our wisdom. It speaks of the center of man's being. So this is not something external or something that's periphery or superficial. It's not something that is just on the outside that is wrong for you. It's not something that you just put a sticking plaster on or get a little bit of medicine. This is an inward, you think of an inward wound. And an inward wound is one that can cause deep problems. And this is something deeply wrong right on the very inside of us. Something right down deep in the heart. The Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 7 and verses 20 to 23, he says, And he said that which cometh out of the, uh, out of the man that defileth the man, for from within out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, All these things come from within and defile the man. So there's something that's within. Albert Einstein, the great scientist, he wasn't a Christian, but he said evil is the real problem in the hearts and minds of men. It's not a problem of physics, but of ethics. It's easier to denature plutonium than to denature the evil spirit of man. And, of course, he had it right with his precise and insightful mind. He had seen what is wrong, what is very often denied in this day in which we uh, live. But the Lord Jesus reminded us that there's a fundamental problem with the heart. Dr. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on Mark, said, A man is defined by that which he holds in his heart. If the heart is evil... There will be evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetous, and all the other sins. Jesus lists here eating or refraining from certain food will not change this list one iota, nor will washing one's hand. It is the nature that must be cleansed. And dear friend, this is the thing we're dealing with your nature. Now, it's not psychology. It's not sociology that will bring the solution to this problem. It has to be the very power of God that brings a transformation, a new birth from within. That's the only thing that can make the difference. The heart has to be changed. The very uh, center of our being, what way we uh, look at things and see things. The Bible says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And that word desperately wicked is a word that can be translated incurable. There's nothing that can be done by man or by you or me or by any priest or prelate or anybody else. It's only God that can transform the innermost part of our being. So you see that this is an inward thing and God has to deal with the inward. But it's also a sinful thing. Because it's the heart, but it's an evil heart. He says this is an evil heart of unbelief. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11, he says the heart of the sons of men is fully set to do evil. Just doesn't do evil, but it's fully set. That's our set. That's 
our um, the, the uh, very nature that we have. That's the bent that we have. It, it is the way that we will turn. It, it, left to ourselves, we will always turn to sin. And you notice that the problem's a common one. He says there, the heart of the sons of men. This is to do with everybody. And we are all uh, included under the title, the sons of men. He says that the heart of the sons of men is fully set to do uh, in them to do evil. Elsewhere it says God saw that every thought or every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Does that mean that they never thought good? That they never loved their wife or their family or whatever? Um, it, it does it doesn't mean that they didn't love or do things that we would be counted as what we would count as good. But they did it out of an evil heart. A heart that was in rebellion against God. We think of how selfishness enters in, arrogance enters in. We become obsessed with ourselves, and it begins to grow in the very heart of our being. This is common. It's to do with the sons of men. So it has to do with you and it has to do with me. It's not only common, but it's critical. We see that this proceeds from an, uh, uh, an evil heart. But what proceeds from an evil heart? Well, it's unbelief. And I want to tell you that that's critical because unbelief is a sin that will damn you in hell. And we uh, do not take it seriously enough. We uh, maybe think, well, the awful, the most heinous sin is murder or rape or some of these things, genocide, or some of these men that were in power brought great uh, uh, afflictions upon people. And we think of that as the most heinous sin. But you know, in the eyes of God, unbelief sits amongst the heinous sins. We think of the children of Israel here, and really what they were doing was denying that the Lord had the right to rule over them. They were in treason against God. And you know how um, treason is maybe counted as the capital crime, even when all of the uh, many uh, uh, offenses that the capital punishment was taken away in Britain uh, for treason, for certain types of treason, it stu still stood for a long time. I presume it's gone now, uh, but uh, a number of years ago it was still on the statute books. It is counted as the most heinous crime. And you're in rebellion against God. In Numbers chapter 14 and verse 11, the Lord asked Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them. And in verse 22, the Lord says that the people had seen his glory and the signs that he had given them. And he says that he put them to the test these ten times. And the Talmud and the Jewish commentators actually have counted up the ten times that they were tested. But I think really what the Lord is saying is that many times God had given them opportunities to see what he could do. And yet still they were in unbelief. God was long-suffering against them. 
And yet they were still in unbelief. And you think of the person or the nation that keeps spurning God. My, what a dangerous thing that is. The Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But in your unbelief, you don't have a pure heart. So you can't see God. Your heart is desperately wicked. It's an evil heart of unbelief. We see the malady of unbelief. But then I want you to think about the tragedy of unbelief. Now, you'll see what the Lord had said to these people in Numbers 14 and 11. He said, how long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them. And the tragedy here is that God had given them these many times when he had showed them his majesty and his power and the ability that he had. And I want you to see that these people uh, were unbelieving in spite of the promises of God. When God had made a covenant with Abraham, he had said that he would bring them into the land. And when he had renewed it with Jacob, we read in Genesis 15, verses 18 to 21, God said to Abraham, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. So this was a long-standing promise. God had said, well, it'll not be fulfilled. When he had talked to Abram, he said it'll not be fulfilled until the Amorites have fulfilled their iniquity. But he said, there's coming a day when you'll enter in and you'll possess the land. He renewed that with Jacob. And in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, he said, the Lord uh, sending Moses, and he said, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey and unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And you notice the certainty of the promise. I am come down to deliver them. And they had heard that. These people here, they were the very ones that had been brought out of the land of Egypt. God had delivered them. God had brought them out by a mighty hand, by bringing them through the Red Sea, by mighty miracles. And they could see that God was fulfilling his promise. And we think of the many promises that God has given since. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And if the Lord said that, then it's true. All the promises are in him, yea, And in him, amen. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, that if thou confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. He says in John 3 and 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We think of the word to the Philippian jailer, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. 
we have the mighty promises. So when we stand in unbelief, we are, as it were, saying, we reject the promises. We don't believe that. You're really calling God a liar. You're saying to God, you're lying. You're not going to fulfill that to me. And these people were unbelieving in spite of the promises. And then they were unbelieving in spite of the preview. They had seen the fruit of the land. They had sent in the spies. They had brought out, as we said, this great uh, bunch of grapes that had to be carried on a pole between two men. As we say, it's the symbol of the Israeli tourist authority to this day. So they had seen that God was going to bring them into a land that was flowing with milk and honey. They could see that here they had concrete evidence of the fact that what God was telling them was true. And you know, you have many concrete evidences of the fact that what God is saying is true. We think of the many streams of evidence that come. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And as we look at the heavenlies and as we look at the nature all around us, there is evidence everywhere of the Creator's hand. How can everything uh, that we have around us come out of nothing if it isn't for the hand of God? How can uh, everything that we have uh, come out of absolutely nothing if there is not a Creator to put the everything there? But you look at even God's people, and I know that many of God's people can feel, and we can uh, have a bad testimony. Maybe you can point to some of God's people, but you can't deny that there are many that are truly born again and have been changed. People that maybe have been brought out of uh, drug addiction or brought out of alcoholism or brought out of all sorts of iniquity and sin and have been transformed by the mighty power of God. And, dear friend, you're still unbelieving in spite of the preview, in spite of the fact that you can see with your own eyes that God, by his grace, has worked in hearts. And then they were unbelieving in spite of God's presence. If you look at Numbers chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, it says, And Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it, for thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, for they have heard that thou, Lord, art among this people, and that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by day, time in a pillar of cloud, and in a pillar of fire by night. So the Lord had been among them, the Lord had been there. The Shekinah glory of God was among them. They could see the fiery, cloudy pillar that was the evidence of God right there in the midst. And yet in spite of seeing God in the midst and these evidences of the power of God, they were still unbelieving. Maybe you're the same. I wonder if you've been in a meeting or maybe a number of meetings where the power and the presence of God has been very evident. And you've heard the calling voice of God, and you have heard God speak, and God has been convicting you of your sin, 
and there has been that move within your heart. And yet at the same time, you've rejected. You've still stood in unbelief. In spite of the fact that God has been there, that God has been speaking, that God's voice has been among us, yet there is still that unbelief. Men and women, we need to deal with unbelief. We see the malady of unbelief and the tragedy of unbelief. But one more thing I want you to see, and that's the remedy for unbelief. If you look at the portion of Scripture, I want you to see that we have some indications of the remedy for unbelief. The first part of the remedy is to fear. Look at uh, chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, and verse 1. It says, let us therefore fear. He says in the previous verse, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And then it says, let us therefore fear. And the word therefore is a word that refers back to what has just happened. He's referring back to the unbelief. And he says, because of unbelief, let us fear. That's the first thing. We've got to have that fear. The Greek word that is translated fear means to tremble with fear. And we think of how in the text there was this concern about missing out on the rest of God and the blessings of God. And he's drawing the word of conclusion here. And he's saying, well, he says, we need to fear. He's thinking about the children of Israel going through the wilderness and how so many in their unbelief perished in the wilderness. And he's really saying, we need to fear lest we perish too. We need a fear in case we miss out on the rest of God. And dear friend, if you continue in your unbelief, if you're, there is no fear of God in your heart, and you carry on in your unbelief, you'll miss out on the rest of God. You'll miss out on that eternal rest and that eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, Fear not them who are able to destroy the body, but fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul and hell. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. There needs to be that fear. But the second thing, or the second part of the remedy, not only do we fear, but we believe. Look at uh, verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 4. For we which have believed to enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Um, he says, for we which have believed to enter into rest. And we need to have faith. The remedy to unbelief, of course, is faith. In verse 2 of Hebrews 4, it says, For unto us uh, was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. And so there was no belief, there was no faith. The Bible says the message of Christ at the very beginning was repent and believe the gospel. The Bible says without faith it is impossible to please him. Dear friend, the Lord is saying 
believe in me. Trust in me. You have the evidences if you'll only look for them. You have the very fact that God comes down at times, and maybe even God is speaking to you tonight. You have the evidence of the presence of God in the midst. And dear friend, you've got to believe. We think of how the um, good news uh, is to preach to those who will believe. And we think of how uh, simple it is. But I want you to catch a little thought there in verse 2. It says that the good news was preached. And there's a very interesting construction there because the original indicates that what is being done here where the gospel is preached, it indicates that the preaching of the gospel, the good news, really was a completed task. It was a totality. And the people here, what has been indicated is that the people that did not believe had not just got a smattering of the gospel, or they had heard something of the gospel, but they had heard the totality of the gospel. They knew it from beginning to end. They had been told all about how they could get right with God and how they could enter into the rest of God. And maybe I'm speaking to you tonight, and as you come here, you've sat under the gospel so many times that you could say that you know it all. Uh, We can really never know everything of the gospel because it is as profound as can be. It is from God above. But nevertheless, you know the rudiments of the gospel. You know that you need to be saved. You need to come and trust in him. And dear friend, you could know all about the gospel and know all about the church and know all about worship and stand before God at the day of judgment. And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. Oh, dear friend, you need to come, and you need to come today. Look at verse 7. It says, again, he limits a certain day. I say in David, today, after so long a time, it is said, today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your heart. And today is the day to believe. Today is the day to come. So there is fear, and then there is belief. But then I want you to see there's a third part of the remedy here, and that is to strive to enter in. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. It says, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So he says in order to overcome this unbelief, we have to labor to enter into the rest. The Lord Jesus said something similar. He said, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For, I, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. And the straight gate was the entrance to the narrow way that led to heaven. And he says, strive to enter into there. Now, that doesn't mean that we come by works. But it does mean that very often it's a hard thing when we come. And maybe, sinner, you know the hardness and how the devil strives against you, how barriers are being set up and the flesh rebels against leaving itself and coming to the foot of the Lord Jesus Christ and surrendering yourself to him. 
And in that sense, you strive to enter in. Don't give up. Don't give up. Strive to enter in. Strive, labor, until you get to the Lord Jesus Christ. And do it now, today, if you'll hear his voice. Harden not your heart. Don't stand or sit. Don't continue in unbelief. Because, dear friend, unbelief will damn your soul in a lost eternity. Here were the Jews, and they prided themselves on all the information that they had. The fact that they had the oracles, they had the teaching of God, the Old Testament, and all the rest of it. But my, when they came in unbelief for all of their privileges, it made no difference. Coming to church won't save you. It'll not make you a Christian either any more than going into a garage will make you a car. The whole issue is the issue of faith. And faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not just a matter of faith in anything. It's got to be faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you'll repent of your sin today, and if you'll come to his feet and in faith take him as your Savior, he'll save you to the uttermost. May you come tonight. May you lay aside the rebellion. Lay aside the unbelief. Lay aside the treason against Almighty God and turn to the Lord in faith and in repentance. May you come and seek the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let's just bow in a word of prayer. Our loving God and our gracious Father in heaven, we do thank Thee for thy precious word to our hearts again tonight. And we pray that thou wouldst continue uh, to speak to hearts and draw sinners to thyself. We thank that there's a Savior from all sin. And we pray that thou wouldst deal with the evil heart of unbelief and bring men and women to the foot of the cross. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we'd ask these things. Amen. I wonder if we could turn uh, for, uh, uh, to the hymn 221, Come Every Soul by Sin Oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord, and he will give you, surely give you rest by trusting in his word. We sing the first two verses of the hymn, and we'll stand as we sing.
loving God and our gracious Father, part us in thy fear and with thy blessing. We pray that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with thy people both now and in the incoming days. For Jesus' sake, amen.